0: So we're continuing our series out of water. Today we're going to look at the topic of regret. I don't know if you have any regrets. Most of us do. Uh, But I'd like to begin with a story I came across this past week. It was reported in the New York Times. It was Academy Award winning actress Viola Davis. Many of you know who she is. She was asked the question by the Times whether she regretted any roles that she'd passed up. This is what she said. Almost a better question is, have I ever done roles that I've regretted? I have. The help is on that list. Now, that might surprise you like it surprised me, because, you know, I watched the movie, I thought she was outstanding in that movie, but she went on to explain why. I know Abelene, I know Minnie, they're my grandma, they're my mom. And I know that if you do a movie where the whole premise is, I want to know what it feels like to work for white people and to bring up children in 1963, I want to hear how you really feel about it. I never heard that in the course of the movie. In other words, Ms. Davis really wanted so much more for that movie than what it delivered on. She felt like an important part of the story was not being told. So as a result, she grew to re- regret that. She, she, she wished that she'd never made it. And so I think maybe all of us have that feeling from time to time that if I had a do-over, I wouldn't do things the same way I did them in the past. Webster's defines regret like this. It says, regret is sorrow aroused by circumstances beyond one's control or power to repair, an, expressing, an expression of distressing emotion. Now, there's two main regrets people have. One is the things they did, which they wish they hadn't done, and the things they wished they'd done but didn't do. But regret is even more than that. Regret is that somehow, because of that thing I did or didn't do, that my present, my reality, my my future is forever altered. That I'm in a place right now where I wish I would have never ended up and I'm stuck. I'm trapped there because of this regret. Regret's a very heavy burden. It gets us mired down in things that are beyond our control. That's the way it's defined. A regret is something that's beyond our control or ability to repair. So what it does is it fixates us on the past. It gets us stuck in the present and leaves us totally unmotivated for the future. Now, I don't know if you recognize the name Kevin Tunnell. His story was told in books. It's been told in magazine articles. There was even an HBO special on his life. Kevin will never forget what happened to him in 1982 in Fairfax County, Virginia. He was 17 years old at the time, and for the first time in his life, he decided to drive drunk. And on the way home, he hit another car, and he killed an 18-year-old young woman. Kevin was convicted of manslaughter. He was mandated by the court to spend one year campaigning against drunk driving. Kevin didn't spend a year doing that. He spent seven years doing that. He really felt that was important. The family sued him for $1.5 million, but agreed to an out-of-court settlement for $936 with one catch. Kevin had to pay that $1 a week every Friday for 18 years, the same age as their daughter. Now, the problem is Kevin forgot it several times. Four times the family took him to court for not paying. He had to spend 30 days in jail one time just for failure to comply. Kevin said that he didn't intentionally defy the court order. It just tormented him constantly to be reminded of the girl's death. He even once offered the family a box full of checks to cover every single payment. In fact, a year beyond what was required by the agreement... But they refused, saying that what they wanted was not money, they wanted penance. Now, I've never lost a daughter, and I hope I never do. And I can say in all honesty, I'm not sure I would feel any differently from this family whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver. I, I sympathize with that totally. But there's a part of me that can also sympathize with Kevin, because I know what it's like to foul up. Now, whether he deserves it or not, or whether this judgment is fair or not, that's not something I'm... Debating this morning. Really, what I'm asking you to do just for a moment is enter into Kevin's experience. And I want you to think about your biggest regret the thing that you said or did or failed to say or do, your biggest regret in your life. And now imagine being reminded of that every week for the rest of your life. I I want you to think about the time you start to write a new chapter in your life about the time you feel like you're getting some traction, you get a reminder immediately that the previous chapter was totally messed up. Now, the, the truth is some of you don't have to imagine very hard because you're forever replaying on the video screen of your mind every foul up, every mess up, every screw up of your life. You mercilessly beat yourself up. And if that's you or it's somebody you care about, I want to tell you this message is just for you. Now, where I'd like to begin is with something a concept that's deeply tied to the idea of regret it's a word in the bible that gets loaded up with a lot of baggage most churches don't even use this word anymore for many of us our associations with the word are purely negative and that's not good we have these associations to our detriment because this word is the single most powerful remedy for regret and it's repentance but like i said we don't understand this word And we've allowed people who abuse the word to load it up with this baggage so that now we avoid it. So I want to begin with rehabilitating repentance. Like I say, repent is a word that you don't hear in church very often these days. We kind of shy away from the term largely because of the associations. We tend to associate it with people who are religious fundamentalists and street preachers. We associate it with people like the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, they like this word. They put it on multicolored signs. They show up at the funerals of soldiers coming home from overseas and celebrities, and they stand across the street with their signs, repent. It's also very popular among self-righteous people. They love to use this word, repent, you filthy, rotten sinners. We hear it all the time. But what I want to do is rehabilitate the word, not by coming up with some newfangled definition, but just by getting us back to the Bible. I want to show you something that hypocrites don't understand. That rather than being a smackdown for sinners, that this is a powerful word of hope. In the very first message in this series, you might remember that I told you that first and foremost, the dominant association with this word in the first century was to think about our thinking. That's what the word meant. If you lived in Jesus' time and you heard somebody say the word repent, your first thought would be, I'm supposed to think about my thinking. That's the way they would hear it. I came across uh, Jan Johnson. She's the author of more than 20 Christian books. She's written more than 1,000 Bible studies and magazine articles. She also writes for World Vision. And she made a statement that resembles mine from the first message. She said, as we think about our thinking, which is one way of translating repentance, metanoia, we see that God's law is really good and wise. Or how about this? This is from a book called Repentance in Christian Theology. For Jews living at the time of Jesus, repentance meant a fundamental change in thinking and living. So repentance, the first association we should make with this word, is that God, Jesus, when he preaches the message of repentance, John the Baptist, wherever we come across this word in the Bible, the first thought we should have is God is challenging us to think about our thinking. That's the theme of this entire series. In fact, you could say that this eight-week series is a series on repentance. We just decided not to call it that because we didn't think you'd show up. Okay, but, but it really is that. It's, it's about thinking about our thinking. Now, like I say, if you know anything about the Bible, you know this is Jesus' message. But for Jesus, this is not some kind of hate-filled word. This is a word that's graced with love. In God's vocabulary, repentance is an invitation to return to love, to return to purpose, to return to the reason why we were made. When the Apostle Peter described what repentance is, listen to what he wrote. Repent so that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He doesn't say turn or burn. He doesn't say get right or get left. He says come back to God to be refreshed. That's a very different message than we hear from the fundamentalist, isn't it? You see, we've been conditioned to hear this word and flinch, to think of it as kind of a spiritual body slam. And I just want you to know it's not a hate-filled word at all. Listen to the Apostle Paul, what he says. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Repentance flows out of the kindness of God, which means it's an invitation, not an ultimatum. In repentance, God is saying to us, you've lost contact with the person you were created to be. If you want to be restored to being that person I meant you to be, then repentance is the path you follow in order to recover it. C.S. Lewis, the great Cambridge scholar, said this, Repentance is not something God demands of you before he'll take you back. It is simply a description of what going back is like. The highly respected Bible teacher and preacher, Beth Moore, said repentance is one of the most glorious rites hailed by the cry of Christ's finished work on the cross. We get to repent. This is not our self-condemnation. This is not our self-loathing. This is our liberty, our restoration. Isn't it amazing? Among people who really know their Bibles, people who love and respect the Bible, they have nothing but positive things to say about repentance. Simply put, you and I have been fed a lie about this word. We've been taught to think about it in all the wrong ways, and that has played right into the enemy's hands. Because if the message is turn or burn, guess what? You're not going to turn. If the message is, you know, love me or I'll destroy you, if that's what we hear from God, what kind of choice is that? Who's going to run into the arms of a God like that? Friends, that's not the choice in repentance. We've allowed broken people to load up this word with a lot of baggage that honestly the scriptures do not merit. So look at this next distinction. Repentance is God-centered, not me-centered. We have a great example of this in the Old Testament in the life of David. The Bible tells us that David was a king, he was a poet, he was a leader. But he was also a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And what we know is he committed the sin of adultery, and for a year he tried to keep it under wraps, for a year he didn't confess it. And during that year his life was really miserable, but when he finally does confess, confess. It's because the prophet Nathan comes to him, tells him a carefully crafted story that's intended to expose his heart. It does that, and David repents. We have his prayer recorded in Psalm 51. So if you ever want to know what David prayed when he decided to repent of his sin with, of adultery with Bathsheba, it's Psalm 51. What's always struck me about this prayer is just how simple it is. In fact, both what it says and what it doesn't say are really profound. Let me read to you the opening of this prayer. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So the first words out of David's mouth is to ask for mercy, and he tells us why. He tells us what motivates this cry for mercy. It's two things. First, God's unfailing love, and second, God's great compassion. So David, when he repents, is he talking about God's anger and vengeance? No. Is he talking about God's threats and judgment? Again, no. The thing that causes David to seek the mercy of God is that he knows how much God loves him. He repents and runs back into his arms. This is why I say true repentance is God-centered, not me-centered. It's focused on who God is. It's only when I understand, truly understand how much God loves me that I run back into his arms. I repent. Something else about this prayer. It's a very familiar prayer. We know he prays this about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. But have you ever noticed what he doesn't pray? There's not a word about sex in this entire prayer. Did you know that? Now, we read this, and we read his story, and we think, well, the whole problem was sex. You know, sex led him into deceit. Deceit led to murder. The whole problem was sex. Why isn't David praying about sex? Why isn't he crying out for sexual restraint? Why isn't he praying for other men to hold him accountable? Why isn't he asking for protected eyes and sex-free thoughts? I mean, these are the kind of things I hear churches tell people all the time. to get caught up in sexual sin. Why doesn't David pray this way? Because sexual sin is a symptom, it's not the disease. People give in to sexual sin because they haven't found their joy in God. The reason we're enticed by sexual sin is God doesn't have his rightful place in our heart because sin is what we do when our hearts aren't satisfied in God. And David knew this about himself, and it's true about you too. David is showing us by the way he prays what is really needed for those who sin sexually. Now, let me make this really abundantly clear. I don't want to leave this point without making it really clear in your minds. There are a lot of Christians today who think the key to victory is to be negatively oriented, to choose to focus on not doing something. And what I'm going to tell you is, according to David's prayer, the key is to be positively oriented toward God. You know why? Because in life, you will move toward what you focus on. Full stop. You move toward what you focus on. If you focus positively on God, your life is constantly moving toward God. And if you're focused negatively, if you're focused on not doing something, you're moving just as surely toward that thing you're choosing not to do. You see, let me give you an example. Somebody brought a box of Girl Scout cookies to the church office this week. I don't know who it was. I got to find out who that was. And if it weren't bad enough, they were thin mints. So I walk into the office, I see him on the end of the the credenza we have there, and I said, who did this to us? I'm going to find out who it was, okay? But I made a mistake. You know what I told myself? I'm not going to eat those cookies. I'm not going to eat those cookies. I'm not going to eat those cookies. And guess who ate the cookies? I ate those cookies, almost every one of them. A box. I mean, one portion is like a sleeve, right? I mean, it's not like two or three cookies. Why? Because I wanted to prove my message to you this morning. If you focus <laughs> negatively on something, you'll end up doing the very thing you chose not to do. You will, you will move toward what you focus on, whether that's positive or whether it's negative. Here's something else to keep in mind. God's goodness draws us to himself. Now I have a quote I want to share with you. It's a little bit more difficult to understand because it was written in the 15th century. This is a Puritan minister by the name of Stephen Charnock. And if I had a contemporary version of this, I would share it, but I've never found anybody that says it as well as Stephen Charnock. Listen to this. A legalistic conviction of sin arises from consideration of God's justice chiefly, but an evangelical conviction from a sense of God's goodness. A legally convinced person cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as a roaring of a lion. I have provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth whose word can tear up the foundations of the world. But an evangelically convict, convicted person cries out, I, I have incensed a goodness it's like the dropping of the dew. I've offended a God that had the deportment of a friend. Now, I don't know if you pick up on what he's saying, but basically he's saying there's two ways we see God, and they affect how we repent, if you will. Some people think, I've sinned against the God who made the foundations of the world, who created the universe, spoke it into being. And you get upset about that. And you're upset about that because of how it's going to affect you, because you think, I am really in trouble. Because this God is so awesome and so powerful, who am I to have offended this amazing, powerful being? But Tarnock said there's another way of looking at this, and that is to see God as good and loving, to know all the good things that he wants from me, to look at all the things he's put in my life and say, how can I treat him like this? Tarnock's point is repentance is not just about being sorry because you messed up. It's about coming to understand that you've broken the heart of the one who loves you like no other. You've sinned against a good God who loves you incredibly. Focusing on his goodness changes that selfish orientation that's ruining your life. I'm telling you, friends, it's never been about God's anger or the fear of punishment. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance is motivated by love and God's compassion for us. This is why we run into his arms. Look at what the Bible reminds us of. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that that verse tells us is that God's love anticipates our failure. His grace anticipates sin. God knows we will fail. God knows we will sin. Yet he still loves us, and he still calls us his beloved. So there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. And there's nothing you can do to unearn God's love. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less because God has already loved you in your worst condition. He loved you before you accepted you. In his grace, he loved us as we are. Now, here's the deal. God's grace is everywhere, and God's grace precedes repentance. So re- repentance is a response to an awakening in our soul that God is good. It's, a, it's focused on God, it's not focused on us. Now let me tell you what this has to do with regret. Regret is focused on the self. Repentance is focused on God. Regret is a human attempt to deal with the problem of a past I cannot change. And repentance is God's way of remedying that past and letting it go away forever. So think about how this plays out in your life. When you mess up, when I mess up, typically what wakes us up is Pain. Our pain wakes us up, and there's great danger in that moment because most of us will do almost anything to get rid of that pain. And it's at that point we make a choice, repent or regret. And let's be really honest here. A lot of us choose regret over repentance. Repentance is about self-pity. It's about self-absorption. To be upset about the, the, the pain that sin has brought into your life is not the same thing as biblical repentance. I see this all the time. I see people who mess up their life, their their marriage, their their employment, their family. And I've seen the big crocodile tears and the words of endless remorse. But I've noticed something peculiar. Sometimes people sink into feelings of self-loathing. They start talking about how painful these consequences are, how they feel abandoned by everyone. They get mired down in this language of self-condemnation. In fact, sometimes they even use it to get sympathy from others for how terribly they've messed up their life. And to the average person, this looks like someone genuinely sorry for their sin, but it's not. Which is why I call this next point, some people don't repent, they self-punish. Now Priscilla Shire is one perceptive spiritual leader. And she calls this out for what it is. She said some people settle for something that feels like repentance, even if it's not exactly what God is asking you to do. Self-punishment is not the same as repentance. Self-punishment is pain management. It's me trying to stay in charge of the consequences. Rather than running to God, I'm determined to stay in charge. So many of us, we regret to torture ourselves. Now, back in the 13th century in Europe, during the time of the Black Plague, there was a fanatical cult called the the flagellants. You've got to be really careful how you say that word in church. Because there's another word really remarkably similar. But flagellants... They, they, they would hold these loud, long processions through the city streets of Europe, often naked, beating themselves with rods and whips and chains until they were bruised and bloody. Why? Because they believed unless they suffered miserably for their sins, they couldn't be forgiven. Now, in Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail, which I know none of you people saw, but in that movie, I'm told that there's a scene of these guys walking around, and they're the modern-day flagellants, and they're hitting themselves in the head with a board. You remember that? See, I just got you to confess, right? Okay, you remember that? Well, you might have thought they're just poking fun at religion. They were talking about what was going on in the dark ages, because that's really what the flagellants were like. They were beating themselves up, thinking that somehow they would earn the forgiveness of God. We still do it. Now, you may not have thought it like it. You may not have thought about it like this way before, but. We really do try to stay in control of our own suffering. So we inflict pain on ourselves, guilt trips, endless regret, as an attempt to punish ourselves for our sin. We make ourselves feel awful for the mistakes we've made. I see this among Christians all the time. They mess up in some way, and they don't go immediately to God to confess it because they don't think that they deserve that forgiveness. And so what they do instead is they just continue to beat themselves up. And only when they felt miserable enough for long enough do they go to God and they confess their actual sin. And friends, let's just call that what it is. That's an attempt to self-atone. That's an attempt to try to pay for our sins on our own power. To make matter worse, when you can't forgive yourself, when you live a life of regret, it turns you into a kind of person who mistreats other people. And when you mistreat other people, how do they treat you? They treat you the same way. People are reciprocal creatures. When you mistreat people, they mistreat you, which is the way you feel you need to be treated. You see, we set ourselves up to be punished. There have been studies done of hypochondriacs. Hypochondriacs are people who are known to have massive amounts of guilt and deep pockets of regret in their life. And what they do is they put themselves through these constant, uncomfortable tests in an attempt to pay for their sins to punish themselves for what they've done. Now, what all these things that I've just mentioned have in common is they're all human attempts to handle a God-sized problem. A.W. Tozer called it the perpetual penance of regret. What I'm telling you is all of this garbage, when it's left unaddressed in our life, all of this regret, it will not only affect you, it will begin to seep out onto the people who have nothing to do with it. You'll begin to take it out on them, or you'll begin to treat them poorly, and they'll return treat you poorly. It's toxic effects of regret. So let me just say right up front, when you and I have done something, when we blow it, we make a choice in that moment to run to God or sink deeper into ourself. To bring to God so that God can do what only God can do, forgive us and release us from a past we cannot change, or we decide we're going to pay for it with regret. So in our time remaining, let me remind you about how God sets us free. There's a passage, we haven't even got to it yet, I'm going to share it with you now. It's considered the locus classicus on regret. A locus classicus is the go-to text on any given subject. If you want to understand regret, you've got to understand 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the passage I want you to see. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, this is Paul writing, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow is produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Now what I want to primarily point out to you about this passage is Paul is contrasting two things. He's contrasting worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Think of worldly sorrow as regret and godly sorrow as repentance. The first thing he tells us about are the results of godly sorrow. Three things he says happens. When God is at work in your life, to change something about your past, you cannot change. One thing, there's no harmful effects in what God does. When you become sorrowful, as God intends, you're not harmed in any way by that sorrow. It does not damage you. It doesn't leave a mark. You're not marred for life. That's how God works. That's one way. Here's another factor. Repentance and deliverance. With godly sorrow... I'm able to repent, which means I change the way I think, which leads me to be set free from the things that have held me captive. When God is at work in your life, you don't keep on beating yourself up over things that you've done, treating yourself as some sort of terrible person. Instead, what has been tripping you up in your thinking is exposed. So you're set free, which is what the word salvation means, to be delivered or set free. I'm freed up from a past I can't change. Then third, There's no lingering regret. When you become sorrowful as God intends, you don't keep on punishing yourself with regret. You know that toxic inner dialogue that all of us are familiar with? Don't ever associate that with the voice of God. It's not God beating yourself up. That's you beating yourself up. That's not God. God doesn't do that. The Bible says when we become sorrowful as God intends... It leaves no regret. There is not this lingering feeling of badness. That's biblical repentance. So when God is working in your life, that's what it looks like. And if that's not what's happening in your life right now, I'm going to suggest to you that maybe you're not just turning it over to God. Maybe you're trying to stay in charge of the process. You're doing pain management. You're trying to save yourself. You're self-atoning with regret. Set free, no regret. That's how God works. Here's what I know. If you've received Jesus Christ as your forgiver and leader by faith, then your guilt was nailed to the cross with Christ. And in his resurrection, he shattered the penalty of that guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. No condemnation, no guilt, no regret. Nothing you can do, could do, will do, or won't do has any power whatsoever to affect your standing with God. God loves you unconditionally. He accepts you utterly in Jesus Christ. At your worst, God loves you most. If that sounds too good to be true, please know that's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called the good news. You have nothing to run from, hide from, or protect yourself from. There's no punishment you have to inflict upon yourself. There's no quota you have to meet. But then what Paul does is he contrasts the way God works with the way regret works. And so this is the result of worldly sorrow. He said, worldly sorrow produces death. It's interesting. Thomas Aquinas taught that that there are some Christians that can be overtaken. He didn't use the word regret. He called it slothful sadness. And when he explained, he said, you know, you're sad because you're a bad Christian. But rather than repent and do something about it, you prefer just to feel bad. Because regret, as exhausting as it is, is the price you're willing to pay for not changing. And since you already feel bad, you might as well just stay the way you are because you know how to manage that level of misery. And I just got to tell you, that's a sad and very unnecessary way to live. Look at the promises of God. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you, God, forgave our transgressions. And this next verse, 1 John 3.20, is my favorite verse in the Bible. I committed this verse to memory years ago. It's been a healing balm on my heart. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. You see, ultimately the question of whether we're going to be released from our regret is whether or not we're going to believe God. Now you can mark it down. Your wounded heart is going to argue with you about this, especially if you've been the kind of person who's beat yourself up. That's a really well-worn groove in your personality. And as a result, your wounded heart's going to say, this can't be true. You're still condemned. You still need to feel awful about yourself for the things that you've done. Don't listen to what this preacher is telling you, but God's word tells you it is true. So who am I going to believe, God or my wounded heart? I believe God because God knows everything about me, and he says it's true. So here's my question. How would you live differently if you truly believed you were fully forgiven and fully graced with nothing to fear in your forgiven past. You know, sometimes people tell me, Pastor Keith, you're so brave to, to talk about how badly you messed up your marriage. And friends, I gotta tell you, bravery's got nothing to do with it. All that stuff is reconciled. We worked it through. It's resolved, it's forgiven by God, it's forgiven by one another. What's left to fear in it? I have no fear in it because it's a done deal. I can talk about it honestly. And if you can't honestly talk about your past, then that means it remains unfinished business. No wonder regret has such a grip on our soul. Our attitude should never believe, be, I'll believe it when I feel it. Instead, it needs to be, I believe it because God said it. Which leads to this, release your regret. You see, one of the reasons that regrets and misopportunities keep presenting themselves to us is because they are unresolved. There is a way to resolve them, and the Bible gives us that remedy. To allow your regrets to surface in your life, bring them to God and do this. If we confess our sins to God, he will keep his promise and do what is right. He will forgive us our sins and make us, or make us clean from all wrongdoing. Confession means to tell the truth, the whole truth. Now, confession is not something God needs. Confession is something you and I need. The Greek word for confession is homo legato, and it literally means to say the same thing. When I confess, I'm saying the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. I'm being honest. I'm coming clean. This searching, fearless moral inventory, if you will, like they say in 12-step recovery. That's a great way to describe it. You see, because a lot of us, we live with such a vague sense of regret because we practice a vague sense of confession. We just say, God, forgive me for my sins, but we don't get into particulars. When you bring your particulars, your fearless moral inventory to God, God cleanses it every part. Now, let me just tell you something, friends. The enemy has a vested interest in you living in regret. Because as long as you are living in regret, you're easily discouraged and you're easily manipulated. You're the puppet and he pulls the strings. He knows how to get out of you what he wants and he knows how to keep you defeated. The Bible says Satan is an accuser. Now, please believe me, friends, the primary thing the enemy does in your life is accuse you to keep you discouraged, to keep you living in that terrible place of regret. But the enemy is a liar, too. He's not telling the truth. God tells the truth about us. I love this verse in Hebrews ten twenty There is no longer any room for doubt. And we can tell others that salvation, that deliverance is ours, for there is no question that God will do what he says. I can say confidently, my past is completely healed and forgiven. So one of the best ways to deal with regret is, is, pract- is to develop the attitude, attitude and the habit of thanking God every time a regret comes to mind. God, thank you that you forgave that. Thank you that you set me free. You see, some of us in the room, what we say is we say, You know, Pastor, if I live like that, like a fully forgiven, fully graced individual, that my past was not going to affect my present or my future, I'd be living like a hypocrite because I don't feel that. Friends, your feelings are lying to you. We sang a moment ago, remember those words? I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. I am who God says I am. I am forgiven, I am restored, I am set free. That's my new name badge. And when I'm living like that, I'm not living like a hypocrite because a hypocrite hypocrite, pretends to be something they're not. And if, you're, if you've asked Christ into your life, you've asked him to cleanse you, you've asked him to forgive you, and yet you act like your past still clings to you and controls your destiny, then I'm telling you, you're living like a hypocrite. You're pretending that something is true that's not true. What God says about you is the truest thing about you. And so we live as God has declared us to be. This is the way we deal with regret. This is how we move positively into our future. Because repentance is all about focusing our life on God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the powerful truths that set us free in your word. I know God because growing up in religious fundamentalism, having all of that baggage deposited into my life, believing that somehow I was to make myself as miserable as I could make myself before I could come to you and confess. All of that, God, is just a reflection of someone who's trying to pay for their own sin and is discounting the wonderful thing you did on the cross. So, Lord, when we come to you and we surrender our life to you, you give us not just a forgiven past, but you give us a new ID badge. You give us a new identity in Christ. We are the sons and daughters of God. We're the children of God. And that's the way you see us. So I pray for anybody who's doing battle with regret right now, when their wounded heart begins to argue with them, and it will, help them to remember that, God, you're greater than their heart, and you already know everything. So the one who knows me best, he loves me most. The one who knows everything about my past and all of my failures, both the things I've done and the things I failed to do, your settled disposition toward us is love. So help us to run into your arms and stay focused on who you are because God, your desire is to set us all free. In Jesus' name, amen.